the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Steve Bullpit, the uh, longtime NBA columnist for the Boston Herald, uh, covers the Boston Celtics. Our guest in that first segment, uh, Anita DeFrance, is with us. Her book is out, uh, My Olympic Life. Uh, she has had a long, long career uh, involved with the United States Olympics, the International Olympic Committee. And uh, I'm so glad we can hook up, Anita. I've enjoyed your book and uh, followed your life with great interest over the years. So thanks for plugging in with me. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. You open your book with my family, Meet the DeFrances. Uh, what do we learn What do we learn there, Anita? I guess of importance is to know that my family goes back uh, many generations in this country. I think I didn't put it in there, but the first one was born in 1709 mm. uh, and and uh, was um, baptized in a Methodist church outside of Philadelphia, interestingly enough. And uh, then, after a couple generations, um, Alonzo de France decides to hear the call of helping others once he'd already moved to Tennessee, and then uh, Benjamin, they called him Pat Singleton, was beginning a movement to have emancipated uh, people uh, move to um, to um, Kansas, where they could have a, a closer semblance of freedom than they would any place east of there. And so the Pat Singleton movement was born, and Alonzo dated to France by great uh, I guess he was just my great-grandfather, yes, um, began his service to others in leading, I guess it was nearly uh, 300 people, 300 families, mm-hmm. to have a better life. Mm. Um, his son, my grandfather, we called him Pappy, uh, became in, involved in the YMCA, or the colored YMCA, or the Negro YMCA movement, mm-hmm. uh, after finding the love of his life and moving back, moving to Indianapolis, Indiana, and marrying her, my grandmother, who we called Nana, but the rest of the people called my grandfather Chief because of his stature, and uh, he certainly looked pretty Native American, and also they called her Little Chief <laughs> because of her stature <laughs> and connection to the Big Chief. <laughs> As you grew up, Anita, what were your athletic interests? Oh, I wanted to do some of anything. Uh, I was I learned to swim when I was four years old, and that was uh, because of spending time at the YMCA at the day camp, and they invited us to a tea party. I said, okay, tea party, that sounds good. Where is it? And they said, okay, it's here. It's just at the bottom of this pool here. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> that was a good way to trick kids into having fun in the pool when they didn't know how to swim to go to the bottom and pretend that you're having a tea party. Well, it, it, it was enough for me. I enjoyed being in the water, and so that's how I learned to swim. 
Anita, you do a chapter, it's chapter six, actually, Becoming an Olympian. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you tell us there? What are you writing about? Oh, I'm writing about uh, what it took back then to actually make the team, which was not easy. And I still don't know, uh, you know, our team are always, they're miracles because there's no set path for one to take uh, to become Olympian. In other countries, they do analysis and, you know, and, and they do measurements and they watch your growth. But here it's okay. The door's open. Who wants to come in and prove yourself? What was your talent? What was your sport? Oh, I'm sorry. It was the noblest of sports, a rowing. I call it the noblest of sports because what else could I call it after all? They're in the eight-oared shell with Coughlin. There are actually nine people because the coxswain, mm-hmm. who is the leader, um, counts and medals as well. And uh, uh, so there's a language that doesn't quite make sense, but it does once you've seen it. Uh, and, and we work really, really hard. Only recently since the not only my book, but the book called The Boys in the Boat came out where they talk about yes. how hard you work. Mm. That book did, has done extremely well, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And it's kind of opened the door on saying things that we rowers today probably would not say uh, about how uh, how uh, challenging the sport is and how much you go through because of the pride in the rest of the boat. And uh, the relationship with you and the other rowers, although you never talk in the boat, only the costumes talk. Um, you never opine about uh, the practice uh, on the water. Uh, it, it, there are strict rules which are, by which we abide. What about the chapter called Crossing the Finish Line? Uh, that uh, sounds interesting. Uh, well, uh, that one uh, had to do... No, I, no, I have to go and look at the book to know what I said in there. Could you give me a hint? I'm not looking at the book. Well, we, we, we talked about becoming an Olympian and then crossing mm-hmm. the finish line. Uh, I, I guess the bottom line is, how, how did you do? What, what, was, what was the result? What, ah, okay. What happened? Got it, yeah. What happened? Well, uh, we actually were sent there uh, in a way that I hope no Olympic team, rowing team, has since been sent. Our very first base. Uh, together as a team was the first race at the Olympic Games, and that's really not the best approach. Uh, So we were all determined. We had one goal, and the goal was a gold medal, and no one was going to tell us we could do any less than that. Uh, So we set off in our first race, and we were ahead of our arch rivals, the East Germans. They don't exist anymore as a country. When the wall came down, that changed that. And uh, we were doing well against them. And in our last 250 meters, uh, there was a plan to sprint at a certain time. And our coxswain, therefore, called for the sprint. And it was as though we hit a brick wall. We were moving along as fast as we could, and boom. And I was like, what? So I'm sure every woman in the boat, except perhaps the bow, was thinking, oh, my God, what's going on here? Well... We're going to take the boat. Each of us will take the boat across the finish line individually if necessary. And everyone really hauled, and suddenly the pressure came off. As we got moving again, I noticed, you're not supposed to look out of the boat, but just out of the corner of my eye, 
I noticed the blade, that's what we call the oars, the blade or oars, floating off in the distance that appeared to be ours. Each uh, oar or blade has the country's colors painted on in a distinctive fashion. So I could tell it was one of our blades. And I thought, that's odd, and kept on hauling. And we got to the finish line, and uh, I have so much admiration for her. Our bow woman had indeed caught what's called a crab, because it's as though some uh, animal from the deep had reached up and grabbed the blade and wouldn't release it. And so she caught a boat, what's called a boat-stopping crab, and released it and stayed in the boat, which was a good thing, because she could have been injured if she had jumped out of the boat, right? uh, the rest of the blades and such. And then, uh, two days later, because we had failed to qualify for the, the final round, the medal round, we raced again. And I don't know what Harry Parker said to her. He was a coach. He coached at Harvard for many years. And the Harvard guys were just appalled at the way we treated him. But we were all adult women. And, you know, he was the coach. And he was a great coach, but he wasn't the great God Harry to us yet. Uh, so, um Somehow, we, we were able to, in the very next race, a few days later, to win the race, qualifying for the finals. And then in the finals, I did think this was a little bit too much of a coincidence. As we were rowing up to the starting line, again, you know, um, you're not supposed to look out of the boat, but every once in a while, especially when you're just going to the starting line. I happen to know this, this large... Um, a boat with a large um, smokestack uh, going up the course, kind of alongside of us, and which had the hammer and the sickle on it. Mm. And I thought, what? <laughs> the St. Lawrence River was right next to the course, uh, and that was the tributary which um, gave water to the course because they had dug it out. It was on the place where the World, um, uh, the world Fair was. So Buckminster Fuller's uh, spear was still there. It caught on fire, but the uh, the superstructure was still in place, but nothing else was. And so there was that to my right, and to my left was the uh, hammer and sickle <laughs> going up the course. Anita, I want yeah, you... For me. Mm-hmm. Anita, let's, I want to move to the 1980 Olympics, the team with no result. Uh, President Carter's call for an Olympic boycott. Uh, what, what what are your memories of that time? Oh, it was a horrific time for us. I don't think anyone understood that we were all self-funded. Not one penny of federal, state, or local uh, government money went into our training, our preparation, or even going to the Olympic Games. Never. Never had happened, and never since then has it happened. There's a little bit of federal money that goes into the Paralympic Games, uh, but then there was nothing. And, in fact, it wasn't a Paralympic Games until after 84, so um, it wasn't an issue. But nothing on any government level supported us, so there was no nexus. By, by then, I, you know, I went to law school in 1974 and finished in 77 and began practicing law, and I'd been part of the uh, test. People testified on behalf of the now called the Ted Stevens Amateur and Olympic Sports Act. And, uh, no, it's Ted Stevens Olympic and Amateur Sports Act of 1978. 
So I knew what it said. It said only if the team is in peril of, of great danger uh, should any action be taken to keep them at home. And the only people who can take such action is the board of directors of the U.S. Olympic Committee. No one else. And this is by federal law. Well, I was doing my best to explain this to people, including the administration, who, you know, it was masterful politically. After all, you had this group of maybe uh, 500 people and their friends and family, so stretch it out maybe to 2,000 people who would be directly affected, family, friend, coaches, and a country of 250 or so million people. So politically, it's a game winner. Uh, but for those who were on the team but did not have a chance to compete, they're not Olympians. In order to be an Olympian, you have to compete at the Olympic Games, and that's how you become uh, noticed as someone who competed at the Olympic Games and therefore an Olympian. So I feel so badly. There are about 225, I should know the exact number, I can find it, of uh, men and women Anita de France, our guest. We've got more with Anita, her book, My Olympic Life. I'm Pat Williams. This is Inside the Game. It's AM 660, The Answer in Orlando. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 400,000 businesses. And right now, listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash America. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash America. One more time. To try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash America. If you're one of the millions of Americans who can't work because of a serious injury or illness, you may be eligible for disability benefits from Social Security. Receiving benefits is your right. It doesn't matter if you've applied before and the government has said no. Let the experienced attorneys at Bill Gordon & Associates help you get the Social Security disability you deserve. Their team of attorneys have been fighting for benefits for people just like you for over 20 years. And best of all... There's no fee until you receive your benefits. There are many conditions that make you eligible, including some you may not even be aware of. So if you're disabled and unable to work, call Bill Gordon and Associates today for your free no-obligation consultation. See if you qualify for the Social Security benefits you need and deserve. 800-296-1206. 800-296-1206. That's 800 296 1206. A hole in the tax laws that saves you some. Good. A hole in the ceiling thanks to your upstairs toilet overflowing. Uh, Bad. Your favorite swimming hole. Good. 
the 10th hole in your wall because you couldn't find the stud? Uh, bad. You need to fix those holes in your home. Call Hole in a Wall Drywall Repair, the premier small hole specialist. Hole in a Wall Drywall Repair specializes in seamless texture matching, and most jobs are done within two hours and with no mess. Wall ceilings. Hole in the Wall is dustless, so you're ready for painting in just 24 hours. We even fix holes from plumbing repairs. No job is too small. And if you rent, let us fix those small holes so you keep your deposit. Popcorn ceiling removal available. And if you work in the trades and need drywall done, we're the ones to call. See how affordable we are. Call 844-NO-HOLES online at holeinawalldrywallrepair.com or hiwdrywall.com and fix that hole in a wall without putting a hole in your wallet. is our guest. Her book, My Olympic Life. It's a good read. Uh, Let's move to 1984, the Los Angeles Olympic Gold Rush, my dream job at the LA 84 Foundation. Uh, Walk us through that period, Anita. Well, I had the great privilege. I had the great privilege of being invited by Peter Ubroth to come and work at the LA 84 uh, it's called the L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee, L.A.O.O.C., and that was a remarkable experience. I started my work in uh, in August of 1981, and there were fewer than 30 people there when I started. Um, our final count of full-time staff only rose to um, 1,900, but that was only in June of 1984. So those of us who were there early got to understand how all of the pieces work and were part of putting it together and making sure all the things work together. So after the games, however, as I told my staff frequently, the games will be over, the athletes will go home, and what will you be doing with the rest of your life? So it was important to have a little bit of uh, uh, idea of what will come next because the end will come and there will be no more L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee jobs. Uh, I and uh, three other members of the staff were given the job by Harry Usher, who was the uh, second-in-command, uh, of taking a look at Southern California and find out what youth sport needed. Because uh, one of the, the uh, promises made when the tripartite uh, agreement was, was made was that surplus, 60% of the surplus would go to the USOC, who would divide it. 40% to the USOC, and 20% would be divided among all of the national governing bodies, meaning like tennis and basketball and, and rowing, would get an equal share of whatever the 20% of the surplus was. And 40% would stay in Southern California for the benefit of uh, sports. Uh, the board decided to focus more on seeing how they could help the youth sports aspect. And so uh, we did our survey and came back with the findings and presented the findings in January of 1985. Uh, the board accepted them, and I thought I was finished with my L.A. Uh, OOC. Uh, but I was called back by the man who was selected as president, uh, Stan Wheeler, who was a uh, professor at Yale Law School. Uh, he wasn't a lawyer himself. He specialized in the sociology of white-collar crimes. And he helped 
uh, structure the foundation and uh, invest the money on a real library, which was built and operates today, interestingly enough, as the foremost, the, I'll say the best, the best, uh, uh, the best digital library, sports library in the world. Uh, we uh, are not necessarily better Olympic library because the International Olympic Committee has that one, but for everything else, and including much of the Olympic items, uh, the LA 84 Foundation has the best. So, do you have any answers to questions you need an answer to? LA 84 Foundation is the place to go. Uh, and that was my dream job. Uh, about six months, I don't know, it's good that. Uh, uh, some point in the first year that Sam was there, he uh, called me to ask if we could talk and get my opinion on some things. And we did talk, and he did get my opinion. And I got a call maybe a month later from him asking if I'd be willing to work on some projects for the foundation. I thought, well, I'm trying to get this business started, but maybe I'll have time. And I thought, yeah, certainly. I'd be glad to do that. Anita DeFrance is with us. We're talking about her book. My Olympic Life. Anita, you do a chapter called Women and Sport Should Be a Non-Issue. Uh, what do you write about yeah. there? Well, the point is that um, sport is something that we as humans do. It's not just one part of humanity. It's all of humanity. Uh, it's people who are uh, what we call disabled, uh, people who have mental uh, issues, and everyone loves sport. So how could it be that sport is only for men? That's just nonsense. Therefore, since we are all absolutely and unequivocally, unequivocally equally human, then we should have equal opportunity in sport. And so once I was able to talk to enough members of my colleagues on the IOC, I was actually given the job by the, uh, the previous a previous, twice previous president of the ILC, Juan Antonio Famaros, who was a Spaniard, interestingly enough, uh, he asked me to help them solve this problem. I said, okay. Uh, it took a little bit longer than I had hoped, and we're still, uh, the ILC itself isn't quite at equality, but we're moving along the right path. And at the game, which is really important because how can you tell an Olympian that they don't know anything about sport? It's rather impossible. So I felt it was important to have a greater number of women Olympians in all of the countries. When I started the project, which was after 1996 at the Atlanta Games, the Centennial Games, uh, we found that there were 26 nations who had never had women on their team. So the first uh, target was those 26 nations. And over time, we grew to have more than, I guess we're at 205 or six National Olympic Committees now. So the goal was always to make sure that the new ones had uh, women Olympians who could come and, and serve sport after they finished their competitive years. So off we went, and I'm happy to say that now every National Olympic Committee in the world has uh, women Olympians, and that's everyone. And now on the field of play, we're working toward having uh, 50-50 uh, among the athletes who come and compete at the Games. We believe we'll be there by 2024, if not sooner. 
but that that's our goal at our Youth Olympic Games, which this year will be contested in Buenos Aires. Uh, we will have 50-50. Uh, and uh, the Olympic uh, Youth Youth Olympic Winter Games, which will be in uh, Lausanne, uh, two years later, uh, there too there'll be a fifty-fifty equality among the athletes. Anita de France, our guest, her book "My Olympic Life." Anita, you uh, close your book with the future of the Olympic movement. Uh, wh- mm-hmm. What What are you telling us there? Uh, I'm telling uh, telling us, telling me, too, that uh, there's more work to be done to get to us completely uh, being within our Olympic ideals, which in the most basic form, I say, are um, mutual respect and fair play, which, of course, goes to the treatment of women and men. And we must, I believe we must always keep those concepts in mind as we make our decisions for the Olympic movement. That's the members of the IOC, uh, we are the governing board of the Olympic movement, and there are now a hundred of us, and we're elected. Uh, right Now those who have been elected since the year 2000 can serve until they're 70. If one was elected before the year 2000, uh, 80 is your use-by date, uh, your personal birth date. When you hit 80, then um, you can no longer serve as a full member. You can become an honorary member if your if your service up to that point has been uh, appropriate, uh, but uh, that that's the use by date for those of us who are less than before the year two thousand. So we made some changes, um, and I think we're operating better. Of course, the the thing that just it seems not to be able to um, go away is the the athletes who will cheat by using. Drugs, and I call it the athletes. I know that sometimes it's uh, perhaps even an entire national government that insists that they cheat so they can do better. But athletes are not idiots. They can tell when their progress has changed dramatically, and if they don't have the continuing support, continuing support, that their progress is likely to fall back. And this is primarily during the uh, preparation season. It's rare that someone would still have dope in their system during the uh, the games or the competitions because they know exactly when those will be. And there's a lot of information now on when you have to, quote, cycle out so that you will attest clean. Uh, so it's, it's, it's really, I mean, let me be specific. I'm sad for the athletes of Russia and the other nations that use their... Um, techniques, uh, because you will be caught. And what we're saying to the world is, don't come to the games if you are dope, because we will find out. And now we have 10 years for our science to progress. We can keep testing the samples for 10 years, and we will catch you. And I'm, I'm happy for that. I'm happy that we changed the system so that there is what's called a, uh, a independent testing authority. So the international federations can use the international testing authority, and they won't be tempted, as certain sports were, to take money for play if an athlete is found to have been doped. That's not going to happen anymore. Anita de France, uh, our guest, and um, summarize for us, uh, Anita, your life and your 
involvement with the Olympics. Give me 60 seconds in closing about what all that has meant to your life. Okay, 60 seconds on 61 years. I consider my learning to swim as the beginning of my Olympic journey. It has been a privilege to have all these opportunities I've had. It's been a privilege to be able to stand for athletes and uh, and and further the need for a clean playing field. It's been a privilege to get to know other Olympians, as one does, and to live in the Olympic Village is a privilege like none other. Everyone there has been successful. Everyone there has been selected by their nation to come to the Games and to compete at the Games. It's a special village, and to be able just to walk through it from time to time, as I do now, is a remarkable privilege, and uh, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate being a part of setting up the structures that will help the Games endure and flourish, which I believe to be the foremost responsibility of members of the International Olympic Committee. Anita de France has been our guest. Her book is called My Olympic Life. Thanks for joining us this weekend on Inside the Game. I'm your host, Pat Williams. You're listening to AM660, The Answer in Orlando. Uh, We're back next weekend for more. Have a great week ahead. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.